0: almost like I was underwater I could hear her voice and she's going Beth Beth and I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm going be quiet I'm trying to tell you this funny story and then I look at my lips and the words aren't coming out my hand was in a claw and then I'm thinking this is really weird and I was only 49 you know so the concept of it's being a stroke didn't enter my mind at all at that point I was sitting down, so there weren't there wasn't any balance issue. And then, as Mary keeps saying, should we call nine one one? I'm like, no, no, no. And um, then I was able to talk again. And she goes, Are you okay? And I'm saying, I'm fine. Just finish, and then I'll, you know, go have dinner. I've been trying to deal with blood pressure with you know meditation and yoga, just trying to reduce the stress, which was very difficult in the job that I was in. And I remember he didn't miss a beat. He didn't look up at me. And he just said, how's that working out for you? Like, it's really high. They said, are you adverse to medication? And I said, no, I'm not an idiot. You know, it's 215 over 125. So they put me on medicine and then just told me to take some time off from work. Probably my lowest point was waking up Thanksgiving morning and my left arm was numb and I was afraid that I was having another, you know, one and would this be the big one? Although I don't ever think I articulated it. I didn't let myself think of it in those terms at the time. But I remember I couldn't get my words out.
1: Hello, I'm Mark goodyear Welcome to the fourth season of Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. High blood pressure usually has no symptoms, but it is a contributing factor in about half of all strokes, the single biggest risk factor. In this episode, we'll hear from Beth Bonis from Portland, who suffered a stroke at the age of 49.
0: It was back right before the 2008 housing bubble crash, and I was doing a rotation in business operations after 25 years at working at a high-tech company, that we'd gone through a bunch of mergers and acquisitions. We'd just been purchased by Technicolor, had loved the projects, the incubator engineering projects I'd done with digital cinema, with the Hollywood, but I really wanted to run a product line. And so I had experience in engineering and in marketing and product development. I didn't want to go into sales, but I figured if I got into business operations and the revenue side you know, that I'd be able to get that. So it was a high stress job, but I was embracing that for the rotation time. And we had three kids. One was, had just moved to New York. She had graduated from college. Two were still in high school. My husband and I had started doing some property development projects. So we had a guest house and we had a duplex. This was before Airbnb. So it was kind of word of mouth with business travelers. So we were, you know, it was a very rich, full, busy life. And I know that hobby-wise, I wanted to be spending more time writing. I'd gotten the screenwriting bug with the work I had done with digital cinema down in Hollywood. So I was, everybody's got a, you know, a screenplay in a drawer someplace. So I was kind of, you know, that was one of my hobbies that I would do on vacation and whatnot. But most of it, my time was spent traveling for work, you know, having three kids that were mostly... On their own. there were older kids, but life was very rich with activity. I know my husband told me the week before I had my first TIA was that I was just really amped up. Uh, And he remembers telling me that there'd be times that he just didn't want to add one more thing into my circling of juggling the plates. So um, he just said, in hindsight, you know, he could see the stress level Amping up, which ultimately culminated in the first TIA and my frequent flyer status at the hospital. We were supposed to meet for dinner. The two kids were home, and I remember I was doing the commute math because there was a, uh, a hair appointment that I had, which was a block and a half away from where we were going to meet for dinner. But it meant getting out of you know work a little earlier, and so it's like one more email, one more phone call, and what's the traffic light, like? and so got to the hair appointment, a little bit late, but not awful. And so I was sitting in the chair watching myself. I'm telling a funny story about a trip to Rome with my mom. And I had just read an email. Remember, I had mentioned that this was right before the housing collapse. And so it was not unusual to get a business email. It was, this was November, right before Thanksgiving here in the U.S., and it's not unusual at the end of the quarter that you get an all hands on deck, do everything you can for sales to do whatever it takes to be able to get revenue for the end of the year. But I remember reading that because I just kind of glanced down at my phone, you know, while the dye was drying. And you could just feel it in your body where you get, you know, the adrenaline zapping. And so the hairdresser came back and I was looking at my stylist and All of a sudden, it's almost like I was underwater. I could hear her voice and she's going, Beth, Beth. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm going, be quiet. I'm trying to tell you this funny story. And then I look at my lips and the words aren't coming out. So I didn't, I don't know if my balance was off. So I wasn't able to talk for, I think it was three minutes, five minutes, not a long period of time. And Mary kept going, should I call 911? And I'm like shaking my head, no. And I'm smiling because this is just so odd. And I'm thinking, what's what's happening here? And then I went to get a pen because it was clear she wasn't hearing me. And so my hand was in a claw. And then I'm thinking, this is really weird. And I was only 49, you know, so the concept of it's being a stroke didn't enter my mind at all. At that point, I was sitting down, so there weren't there wasn't any balance issue. And then as Mary keeps saying, should we call 911? I'm like, no, no, no. And um, then I was able to talk again and she goes, Are you okay? And I'm saying, I'm fine, just finish and then I'll, you know, go have dinner. And so she did. So then I walked around the corner to where my husband was had pre-ordered dinner, had dinner, no other you know, strange events. And then uh, it was time to drive home. And so he goes, well, you take Amanda and I'll take Rachel. Our two daughters should not have driven her home, but everything was fine. We only live a couple miles away from where dinner was. So we get in the house and the kids go upstairs to do their homework. And my husband, Jeff is in the library. And I said, I've got to tell you something, something weird happened. So he is, uh, Full court press calling his, says, you have to call Kaiser, who was our medical group. And he called his sister, who was a nurse at the same time. And at that point, it's like, you know, you go and do the Googling. And so stroke, obviously, then became part of the, is that what I had? So called Kaiser. They said, you know, uh, come in immediately. Don't drive yourself, which I didn't. And went through and did you know, CT CAT scan and portable chest x-ray and EKG and the metabolic panel and everything was fine. My blood pressure was like 215 over 125, which was crazy high, obviously. The only time I'd had high blood pressure with our first daughter, my blood pressure was high, so it took off for pregnancy, you know, leave a little earlier. But I remember... I'd had bouts of higher blood pressure when I'd go in for my yearly pap smear and whatnot, but I was trying to manage that, you know, without any medicines. And so I remember the nurse there, his name was Billy, and he was an ex-military guy, all tatted up and taking all my vitals and whatnot and said, are you taking any medication for your blood pressure? Because it was so high. And I go, no, 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 I've been trying to deal with blood pressure with, you know, meditation and yoga, just trying to reduce the stress, which was very difficult in the job that I was in. And I remember he didn't miss a beat. He didn't look up at me. And he just said, how's that working out for you? Like, it's really high. He said, are you adverse to medication? And I said, no, I'm not an idiot. You know, it's 215 over 125. So they put me on medicine and then just told me to take some time off from work. So we did. So this was 11-14, so 10-ish days before, a couple weeks before Thanksgiving.
1: Beth's holiday plans were interrupted by another event.
0: Jeff and I were up at Safeway, which is one of the local grocery store chains, and had a big cart filled to the brim because we're going to have, you know, 20 people or so that are at, at Thanksgiving. And one of the things when I had the TIA, which is what they diagnosed it as, is I had pressure on the left side. There was no pain, but there were these sparkles. So I had the ocular activity going on. And so they became known as the evil snowflakes. And so while we were shopping, I started to see the those snowflakes again. So I told my husband, and so he's just like, got to go to the hospital. And it's like, let's... There's a blood pressure cuff that's in the back by the pharmacy. And I said, why don't we just go there and see what my blood pressure is? And so we did. And it aired out. I think he tried it. And it was fine. I tried it again and it aired out. So we left this big cart full of food and then took off to go to the hospital again. This time they kept me overnight and thought that it might be a migraine or it might be hypertension. You know, that was not managed, but they did the first MRI to rule out a small vessel. Abscess is what they had in there, and did an echo Doppler. They did another CT, did some more labs, found my cholesterol was high. So of course they put me on cholesterol medicine too. And I basically had the same blurred vision and they called it pulsing hypervision, which was the left eye was strange. That was a term you, you get to know. In terms of all the medical terms they use, it feels like you need a, you know, English translation, you know, dictionary. So they kept me overnight and I didn't have any more events. And so had me go home again. So at this point, we've called into work saying, you know, I'm taking off. Don't know how long. It's the end of the quarter. It's a really bad time um, to be taking off. But um, it was pretty black and white that I needed not to be at work. And so did a quick shuffle for people who were going to cover for me while I was gone. And then three days later, I'm home. It's after lunch. The kids are here, and I just can't get the right words. One of the things that we'll talk about later in terms of what I'm doing now, there's a poem that I wrote about this time where years later where I couldn't grasp the right words, but that was... My mood was off and I just, I didn't feel right. And so we went in and that's where they wondered if it was a a CVA or vasculitis or arterial fibrillation. And it was the first time they talked about an internal carotid dissection, a spontaneous dissection. And so more AKGs, more ultrasounds, another MRI, and there was a spiral dissection you know, in an area that was there. So it seemed that they were starting to find something causing it, but didn't know or what was happening, but didn't know what was causing it. And it was when I was rereading the medical charts recently, it was very surreal to read that I was full code. And so it's like, what does full code mean? And that meant if something happened and I went out that they were going to resuscitate me so to have that, I mean I was 49 so it made sense that they would but to see that 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 was a possibility it didn't really strike me as so dangerous kind of a situation I was in because it was just to me it was just I'm gonna get over this and you know can we get to the diagnosis and then can I move on you know kind of with my life so to speak. They kept me in the hospital for three days that time. And uh, I did see a speech pathologist who, when I could talk, I could kind of talk. It was more when an event was happening that the blood was getting blocked off from my brain. So it was an ischemic stroke. So it wasn't it wasn't a hemorrhage. So I went back then on Thanksgiving um, or the night before Thanksgiving. And then they did, I had uh, some weird rapid eye movement on the periphery. I had problems swallowing. Then the balance started to be an issue. Being able to control my right hand was an issue. They did another MRI because they wanted to evaluate the circle of Willis, which I love the circle of Willis because our bodies have got these redundant, these redundancies. And with the circle of Willis, basically it's multiple ways to get blood to flow into your brain. And I had my left carotid artery that was really occluded, was almost shot. And so the blood went to the right side. Obviously not as much blood could get in, but it's not as if I was completely cut off. And at this point, I had been on the local stroke center, uh, Oregon Health Science, OHSU's rotation every morning as this is events that are happening, you know, what should we try to be doing? So there was was comfort and there were a lot of people that were on your team. But also, why can't you guys figure out what's going on? That got to be very frustrating.
1: Beth was in hospital on Thanksgiving morning.
0: Probably my lowest point was waking up and my left arm was numb. And I was afraid that I was having another, you know, one. And would this be the big one? Although I don't, Ever think I articulated it? I didn't let myself think of it in those terms at the time. But I remember I couldn't get my words out and the nurse shift changed. And there was a woman who came in and she was very chatty. She was fresh for the day and asking if I'm okay. And I can't get words out. And I'm just shaking my head no. And I'm crying, which I'm do now. Um, she's like, Do you want me to call somebody if your husband? And I'm thinking, I don't want you to call him. He's been on deck all this time and I don't want to scare them but I really need them so she called them and I remember when they took me down to have an MRI that morning everybody was off because it was Thanksgiving so the orderly brought me downstairs and I still remember and wrote about this years later being in what is normally a airport level of activity and it was completely empty because they, nobody was there because they were taking the holiday off, but somebody was going to have to be called in to do an MRI on me on their day off. And so he left me down there. And I remember listening to the the elevator doors close and, you know, the ding, ding, ding. And then just sitting there thinking, what is going on? Why can't they figure out what's happening to me? And then this, I, the elevator came down and this perky woman, who'd been, you know, coming from, I don't know, half hour out of town and whatnot. And she's being all chatty and wants to get back to her Thanksgiving dinner. And I'm thinking, swore in my head, you know, I'd like to get back to my Thanksgiving dinner too. You know, I'm sorry you had to come in. And that's when they found that the clot had actually, there was movement in the clot, which is a good sign. And so we had Thanksgiving dinner in the hospital, which was not fun. But I had a private room. It had gotten to the point that I went into the hospital that my husband would say, she needs that warm blanket and, you know, this room and because we had been in there so many times and ironically, it was the same hospital and they put me one time on the same floor that I had had my three daughters at. So I was looking at the same hillside that I watched when I was in labor with them, you know, 15 years before this. So there was something bittersweet about being, you know, in that space again. So we checked out and I made some, I don't some comment, like, hopefully this is the last time. Well, less than, I think, 12 hours went by. Maybe it was more like six. We were back in the hospital again. And I joked to him, I said, okay, do I get a discount? Because I checked out this morning and I'm back again and they was there for the last time for four days. And the clot, like I mentioned, had had started to move, but they just wanted to make sure that it didn't move in a bad way and then basically create another clot, you know, that it would dissipate. So there were, you know, worry KGs and found deficiencies in my B12 and anemia. So they added more Medication. When I look at that medication list, I must have had 20 or 30 meds that they put me on. So they eventually put me on Coumadin, blood thinners, and warfarin, and I was having shots that had to be taken. So the first time I went to the hospital was the November 14th, and then the last checkout was December 3rd. And then the only visits after that had to do with check-ins with my neurologist. So it was a crazy, crazy two and a half, three weeks.
1: Coming up on Stroke Stories, Beth on adjusting to her new post-stroke life.
0: Sometimes when I can't get the right words out at the end of the sentence, oh, that's maybe not my age, that's probably a lingering artifact. So I think I've been re-educating myself in terms of what I went through and what the recovery took, which was, I'm going to be fine. I just need time, you know, to get back to being fine.
1: And on writing through her recovery.
0: It took me about 10 years to actually write about the strokes. I journaled once I could write, because handwriting was something that went out. So once I could write, it allowed me to say things that A, I physically sometimes couldn't get out, and B, just the quiet thoughts. It was, um, it was a way for me to be me or look for me, try to find me. And so the journaling was big. Let's
1: hear how Beth dedicated herself to her own well-being.
0: I did this deep dive. And so Mama got a chance to make Mama a project. I was determined to get off the bloody meds they put me on, which my husband was not. Understandably, was panic like, you're finally not having these events. Why would you want to you know, mess with the meds? And it's like, there are too many meds. I don't want to be on all these meds. And so lots of, lots of spreadsheets, lots of research in terms of the different relationships between the cholesterol and the blood pressure meds and natural ways. So, you know, learning that walnuts and celery and all these foods that can help counter besides eating healthier in general. So I've got spreadsheets that's tracking my exercise. My doctor was very supportive of, of my weaning myself. And so every three months, I try something, you know, with the exercise and meditation and Tai Chi and music. There was a Dr. Wheels has a symphony of brainwaves. It's like an hour and a half song slash toning classical and toning music that you have headphones in. And my PhD sister, she's got a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. And she told me about this. And I just, I was like a kid with a, you know, with a blanket that I, at the hospital, I was doing it and I still use that today. And so having that brain activity, trying to reduce, downshift my work. I didn't work until after the first of the year. And then I worked part-time for a quarter and my exercise routine over the 15 years, you know, have lost that 15 pounds that, you know, you kind of put on a little bit with each baby. There's no get out of jail card. You do one thing and then everything is better. You really have to look at it. For me, it was looking at it holistically. So it was the, how was I eating the stress level? Was I feeding my creative side? A lot of soul searching in terms of where I wanted to be spending my time and was doing more writing which i had then you know done made more time for that rather than just weekends because that was really what fed into my health so i used these spreadsheets to track the bp and the meds and you know found out which exercise routines worked better than others part of the reason i haven't talked about my strokes as strokes and my middle daughter always corrects me and says it's strokes plural, it wasn't just one stroke, is that I don't have the same lingering, long-term, obvious stroke side effects. Since I've done the chapbook that I talked about within the last, really, three or four months, finding out how the stroke statistics are going up in the world and ages are coming down. And so connecting with groups like different strokes um, who are trying to look at younger stroke survivors, that to me has just opened up my eyes in terms of, oh, so that my not being able to swallow all the time actually is an artifact from that. And sometimes when I can't get the right words out at the end of the sentence, oh, that's maybe not my age. That's probably a lingering artifact. So I think I've been re-educating myself in terms of what I went through and what the recovery took, which was, I'm going to be fine. I just need time, you know, to get back to being fine. And I never wanted to ask my husband or the kids, and it took me over a decade, is, am I different than I was before? Because I don't, I didn't want the answer to be, well, yeah, you've changed, So if I didn't ask the question, I wouldn't have to hear the answer. I think it was patience with myself and persistence. And to some degree, not giving the strokes control what I was able to do or having that as a filter became part of I overcame them, but that's not acknowledging that they really were a part of who I am. And the the determination and the work I did for the three and a half years to get off the meds was non-trivial. And so to just blow that off, like, you know, something happened to me, life goes on, nothing to see here, you know, kind of thing doesn't seem honoring of what so many people are going through. And that's why I really appreciate you sharing all these stories, because... It's The awareness is important. I didn't know what fast was. And now it's be fast, you know, with the balance in the eyes, which would have helped in my diagnosis and ultimately to get to the prevention because none of us stroke survivors want anybody else to go through what we had to go through.
1: Beth documented her experiences in a book, Transition Thunderstorms.
0: It took me about 10 years to actually write about the strokes. I journaled once I could write, because handwriting was something that went out. So once I could write, it allowed me to say things that, A, I physically sometimes couldn't get out, and B, just the quiet thoughts. It was um, it was a way for me to be me or look for me, try to find me. And so the journaling was big. Poetry, I've done, like I think most of us, you know, you do it in, in high school. And I had submitted some poems and wanted to do more publishing or do some more writing and and so started more after i retired but there was a um a chapbook contest came up and unlike most chapbooks, you have to, there's a theme that's predetermined by the people holding the contest. But in this case, it was, you know, the author could pick whatever they wanted. Uh, It was poetry chapbook. And so I thought, I've got all these poems, let me go, you know, see if I can put together something that's themed. And I found a poem from the night or the day that I couldn't get the words out. Um, It's called Wrong Word Dinner. And so I just had a zap, to being physically back in that space. And I'm like, well, that's pretty powerful. And then I went, looked at another one, and I found, and I'd forgotten I'd written this, Thanksgiving with a side of no thank you. And it was about going down for that MRI that morning and what happened, and it was really long. So I thought this is too long, you know, to put as one poem. So what I ended up doing was I started the book, the chapbook with the wrong word dinner. And then I took this long poem and broke it up into parts and then found other poems to weave in like the night my sister died when I was 10 and she was three. And the poems just kind of came together and I called the chapbook transition thunderstorms because in uh i grew up in the midwest love thunderstorms and during the summer we talk about how you get soaked to the bone you know to be warm outside you get soaked to the bone because the rain would come down and this it just felt like all these poems were about getting soaked to the bone you know in terms of just taking you down to a place that um was very vulnerable and so Here, I didn't want to talk about my strokes. I submitted this at one finalist, one of the finalists in the contest. And it's like, okay, well, now you're going to get a chance to talk about your strokes because you're going to need to, you know, promote the book. Um, And in the process of doing that is when I found out all these organizations, yours included, um, in terms of just sharing the experience for what it was like to have Basically, you're locked up in your head and not be able to get the words out.
1: And Beth gives her advice to stroke survivors and their loved ones.
0: Patience with yourself is probably the biggest piece of advice. Um, I'm really a strong proponent of writing as a way to let you tap into how you're feeling about things. And you do it privately. It's not meant to give to anybody. You can burn it later if you want to. But... uh, To honor the space that you're in, whatever that, wherever that's at, to be patient with yourself and don't let people tell you no in terms of what you can and can't do. And um, don't waste your energy trying to fight them, you know, to tell them how wrong they are, but just be patient with yourself um, in terms of what your recovery is going to be. And it's, it's a long haul recovery, but there's an essence of you that's still there regardless of the roller coaster that you go through and for caregivers my husband was incredibly patient he picked up so much slack and was just there to listen which was really important to the extent that I wanted to share he was there to listen to whatever you know I wanted to share and was supportive other than that push back on the back I wanted to get off the meds. he's been very supportive support. So patience is just like key.
1: In a relatively short space of time, Beth experienced several episodes with doctors being unable to point to a definite cause of her strokes. But she didn't let her frustration get in the way of her recovery and is now continuing to work on bettering her post-stroke life. Thank you very much for supporting us at Stroke Stories. Please subscribe and rate and comment to help us spread the word. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and there's a story that you can share with us, please get in touch via our DMs on Twitter or Instagram. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.